Hey, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. One of the topics we've addressed here on the podcast from time to time is how the limitations of driver assistance systems can set human drivers up to fail. We had one early guest call that dynamic a moral crumple zone, something which protects the reputation and legal liability of the technology at the expense of the human operator. I've been thinking about that in a new way lately. It's not just technology that can set human drivers up to fail. It can also be infrastructure, AKA the built environment, AKA the way roads are designed and developed to maintain and prioritize speed of vehicles at the expense of pretty much everything and everyone else. So I've been thinking about that because the latest federal figures on traffic fatalities came out last week, and they show that 42,795 Americans were killed in traffic collisions last year, hundreds of thousands more injured. My guest today is Beth Osborne, the Director of Transportation for America, which is a project of Smart Growth America. She's going to help me consider the role of the built environment in those traffic crashes and perhaps most importantly, how we might go about designing safer streets. Without further ado, I'm pleased to bring you this conversation with Beth Osborne. Beth, welcome to the Shift Podcast. It's great to have you today. Thanks for inviting me. Before we get started, uh, you're the Vice President for Transportation at Smart Growth America. Uh, tell us a little bit about the organization, what it is you do, and what you advocate for. Absolutely. Smart Growth America is a national nonprofit that focuses on the role the built environment plays in creating communities that are healthy, prosperous, and resilient. My team focuses on the transportation side of things, uh, and that includes a bunch of different projects, including Transportation for America, that's really known for its policy work, particularly at the federal level, but we also work a lot at the state level. Um, the National Complete Streets coalition, uh, which does tend to work more at the local level, but we also have work all over the place. We have an arts and culture program, and we have a collaboration with the University of Wisconsin, uh, is known as the State Smart Transportation Institute, that works on um, uh, directly with state DOTs on updating their processes and procedures. And generally, our mission as a transportation arm is a transportation system that connects people to jobs and essential services, no matter how people travel, no matter their financial means or their physical ability. You are launching a new program this very week um, that helps connect communities. Uh, tell us about that and what you're up to, what you are looking to kind of receive from the, the mobility community writ large. Absolutely. I'm very excited about a project we're working on funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and that we will be launching in partnership with the uh, with NUMO, the New Mobility Alliance, with Equitable Cities and America Walks. And it is a program to provide 15 small to mid-sized cities with uh, capacity building grants uh, meant to help them build their own internal capacity, whether it be gathering data, improving their systems, bringing on grant writing skills, working with communities and paying their local stakeholders to participate in visioning and planning sessions um, so that they can be stronger internally in looking at addressing transportation infrastructure that divides communities. Um, we will also provide some wraparound technical assistance so that they don't have to use their capacity building grants on that and pull them together in peer-to-peer -peer learning exchanges uh, starting this fall. And so uh, anyone interested in applying, there is information available on our website, smartgrowthamerica.org. And uh, we, if you have any questions, there will be a way to reach out to us, but we really do hope to see uh, lots of communities apply and uh, and whatever we learn from the 15 communities that we work with, we hope to share that learning much more broadly so that everyone can benefit. You know, you mentioned you're interested in connecting people in safe and efficient ways and, and a healthy, resilient transportation system. Give us a bit of a status report here to, at the outset of the podcast. How are we doing on those things right now? Well, uh, particularly on the safety side, we're doing absolutely terribly. Uh, we are so dangerous compared to our counterparts internationally 
that when international organizations do reports, they repeatedly call out the United States and point out if the U.S. were taken out of their statistics, that everyone would be doing very well. But the U.S. is doing so badly, it can make even overall uh, improvements look like uh, everybody's doing poorly. We absolutely savage their reports and bring everybody down. So just a few weeks ago, NHTSA released its latest annual traffic fatality figures. And I think that's when we started talking about, uh, you know, your appearance on the podcast here. And just to go over those numbers, uh, last year, they estimated there were 42,795 traffic deaths in the U.S. Obviously, for for so long now, there's been a lot of well-meaning efforts a lot of organizations that are dedicated to driving down that number and instead it just keeps going up. So like without singling out any one of those, why are our collective efforts to, to eradicate traffic deaths instead backfiring here? Well, I don't think we are being quite honest about what our real goals in transportation are. Um, our, our number one goal is to make sure vehicular traffic is moving smoothly. That is the goal. The first thing you look at as an engineer when you start to design a roadway is how many vehicles do I need to accommodate and how do I design a road to keep those vehicles moving smoothly? Now, once we have accomplished that, our hope is that it will be uh, an affordable, safe system. But that's coming in on the back end of the real goal. We want a safe system where the vehicles are in no way slowed down or interfered with. But we'd like to pretend that is not the case. If we design for safety first, the vehicles would be slowed down and drivers would be interfered with because safety would be the priority, not their, the fluidity of their movement. What's, of course, fascinating is everything we do to make that uh, vehicle travel so fluid does not actually accomplish that. So we lose out on both sides. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I think it's really important to recognize is when I say that we're looking at accommodating the vehicles and moving them fluidly, let's think about what is left out of that statement. Your arrival at a destination. We don't measure that. It's incidental, it's not included, it is not a goal. We assume that if the vehicles move smoothly, you will arrive. But whether you do or not is not something we pay attention to. That's because in the earliest days of the highway program, we had no way to do that efficiently. We have had a way to do that really since the invention of GIS, which is not a recent invention. We just don't. We continue just to look at the vehicle. So if people drive in circles indefinitely, that is an A-plus system as long as it is at uh, the speed limit. If, however, you drive in a very trafficked area, but still get to a whole bunch of destinations in five or 10 minutes, that is a failure that is worth spending millions, if not billions, to eradicate, including if it means taking out the buildings and the destinations you're going to. That's the mindset we walk into in this country on our transportation system. It is hard for safety to find a, a place, an effective place in that regime. So along those lines, we take that number that we started with 42,795, and that amounts to 117 people a day are dying on American roads. Is have we just come to accept the fact that that's a, a a cost of participating in our transportation network? To your point, if the goal is fluidity, um, is that where we're at right now? Where yes. we just kind of accept that this happens? Yes, there is nobody in a position. Uh, that's not true. There are few people in a position of power that actually care enough about safety to interfere with the movement of vehicles. Uh, we have a system in place now where if uh, if someone wants a crossing, we have to have a whole bunch of people run out illegally 
and jaywalk to justify it. If they get hit, it's their fault, and that's human error. And if they don't run out, there's nothing to justify the crossing because if the vehicles, the people in the vehicles are made to wait 10 to 20 seconds, that is too high of a quote, economic price to pay for the safe crossing of humans. I don't, why is it a mystery that we have a safety problem? Of course we have a safety problem. Where does safety fit into that regime? When we talk about making things safer, we blame the people. We, we have a system where as a driver, you're told this roadway is wide open and straight ahead, like, like a speedway, like a racetrack. If, however, you're fooled by that design and you go at a comfortable speed for that design, but they've marked the speed limit lower, that's your fault. That's human error. Now, we all have a word for that. It's called a speed trap. We all know that we design our roads in a way that tricks humans. Why aren't we designing our roads so it's obvious to humans what speed they should be driving? Make the comfortable speed the obvious speed, the design speed. And then once people are going that fast, often 55 miles per hour on surface roads, we built the interstate system because we knew that was patently insane. It would be ineffective, inefficient, and dangerous. So we built a whole separated system because no fool would ever put 45 to 55 mile per hour roadways through communities, but now we do it as a matter of course. And then at those speeds, people are expected to see every potential point of conflict. Now on our interstates, we reduce the conflicts. We say to those drivers, we are going to separate you from oncoming traffic. We are going to give you space on the side. So if you lose control of your vehicle, there's space over there uh, on a shoulder to recover. We're gonna give you nice wide lanes. And when people come on and off, we're going to manage that, uh, that interaction. We're gonna give people places to merge on and off. On our roadways, we have surface parking, we have driveways, we have crossings, we have cross streets. We have a plethora of potential conflicts. So now we told the driver, go fast, spot every potential conflict that is all around you and stop on a dime. Well, physics in our universe does not permit that. But unfortunately, we then blame the human for, for following the design cues and then not being able to spot every potential conflict and stop on a dime. Again, why is it a mystery that our roadways are unsafe? We have created a trap for our drivers and then we blame them when they fall into our trap. This is making me think of the earliest days of self-driving vehicles um, decades ago when they were still science fiction. And you you see in a lot of the early pictures of, of what, what self-driving vehicles in cities look like. And it's, it's on elevated roadways or roadways that are very much separated from the pedestrian traffic. And I don't know, you're, you're making an argument in some way that that it should should be separated right now, or we should have a different, obviously a different infrastructure than the one we have. And maybe that's one permutation of that. Well, I am absolutely making an argument that a decision needs to be made about what kind of roadway we are building. So if we are building a throughway, we know how to do that safely. It is our separated interstate system. You, you don't have development on the side. You don't have parking on the street. You don't have driveway entrances all over the place. You don't have cross streets and you don't have vulnerable users. And if you want that roadway to support local business, you slow down the traffic because everything, human or computer, needs time to react to conflicts. Even the AV will operate better if it's driving at a speed that it makes sense for being able to respond quickly to a conflict because even a computer can't overcome the laws of physics and stop a heavy vehicle in a very short period of time. And we won't make that decision. We do the in-between. We make a highway that's supposed to be locally serving. So it's a throughway 
and it's a, a, a street at the same time, and it fails miserably at both. And I, I must steal from my friends at Strong Towns. Uh, they like to compare it to a futon where it's a bed and a, a couch, but it's an uncomfortable bed and couch. It's not good at either one of those things. That is the standard for building our roadways in this country is something that's trying to be two conflicting things at once and failing. So I'm sure you're going to next tell me, but this is all being addressed uh, by the companies who are building roads, by by colleges who are are you know laying out the next generation infrastructure. Are they aware of these these problems and and working actively to address them? So the problem is with our government uh, at all levels, our governmental rules, which all of these companies are merely responding to and servicing as directed by the laws and rules and regs. Uh, at, at all levels, from the federal level to the state level to the local level. They're, they are perfectly capable of laying down paint in a different configuration. The paint is the paint, you know? The, the paint machine will lay it down on, at, you know, any width we request. It is our rules at the governmental level and our standards that dictate a design that is fundamentally dangerous. It is dangerous for everyone. It's definitely dangerous for the driver and the people inside of a vehicle, but it's particularly dangerous for those outside of a vehicle because it literally nothing about it is designed for them. When we start by designing for vehicles, our design called level of service, it is looking at the number of vehicles and the fluidity of movement. At no point do we then say, will there be people outside of a vehicle? That is not part of our design approach. We do say share the road. It's just supposed to magically right. happen. Go 45 miles per hour and share the road. Sure. No problem. Along these lines, so we've been talking about that that number that I started with, 42,000 something deaths. But the the problem that we're really seeing now is maybe for, for people inside a vehicle, the vehicle occupants, that number is, is plateaued and, and maybe kind of coming down. But it's the people outside the vehicle where we've seen catastrophic increases, I think uh, 64% pedestrian death increase over the last decade. So it's, this is becoming a, a far worse and more, you know, I don't want to write off the people who are in the vehicle here, but, but this is really becoming a crisis for people outside the vehicle in a, in a disproportionate way now. Yes. Uh, now, first, I'd like to address the folks inside a vehicle. It has plateaued from a historic high. It is still a historic high. But just to show how comfortable we are with lots of dead people on our roadways, we went to a shocking high of around 42,000. And then so long as it didn't go up from the shocking high, we're like, phew, we're fine now. What? I mean, God help me, that is terrifying. If the historic high plateau is success. But that's kind of where we are. It's like, okay, so long as we're not going up, it's fine. Um, on the pedestrian side, it's going up no matter what. It has gone up as uh, uh, overall roadway fatalities are going down. It has gone up while overall roadway fatalities are plateauing. And it goes up when overall roadway fatalities are going up. And it is just, again, the fundamental danger of allowing incredibly high speeds in conflict-rich zones. We have designed our vehicles to be tanks. So fewer people are exposed to danger on the inside of their vehicle. They're exposed to unbelievable injury. But the danger is less because we've armored the vehicle, not because we've made our transportation system overall safer. We've said, armor the vehicle for the danger. This is really interesting. And I was thinking about this uh, this morning, uh, knowing that we were going to be talking this afternoon. Uh, there's a couple of new reports out yesterday and today about the safety of e-bikes uh, and how we need to set speeds for e-bikes and scooters that, uh, you know, there's essentially a governor on them that that keeps them at 10 miles an hour or 20 miles an hour, uh, depending on the city that you're talking to. Uh, 
<laughs> the parallel idea of setting um, you know speeds that are set by a governor in your your light duty passenger vehicle that that would be unheard of or or absurd. But here we are having a you know reasonable conversation about it for e-bikes and scooters. Yes, absolutely correct. It is a an interesting kind of division in our heads where um, you know we look at the bicycles and this teeny teeny tiny number of dangers. You know, there's, I believe there was one year where there was something like one or two fatalities between bicyclists and pedestrians. And we said, oh, we got to, we got to slow down those, those bikes. But the 7,341 fatalities for pedestrians, which were a result of vehicles, we're still trying to speed them up. Uh, just really shocking throughout my career. I have heard that when driving goes up, we see fatalities go up. When driving goes down, we see fatalities come down, which was true so long as driving was only creeping up a little and down a little. Um, and then COVID hit and driving went way down and fatalities went way up. Uh, and of course, the big difference was empty roads. Um, and empty roads means we had no congestion to slow people down at least part of the day to a safe speed. And uh, and what is our number one objective in transportation to get those cars moving? So again, I mean, what what we do just goes so counter to anything that we could legitimately call safety. And I really think about uh, th there's a uh, a great guy that I follow on Twitter named Tom Flood, who I believe used to do marketing for uh, the the auto manufacturers, and he really raises these exact issues like you did, the number of ways we try to monitor our children's behavior for the convenience of the driver, but refuse to in any way inconvenience the driver for the safety of our children. It's just, it's really startling where our priorities lie. To some extent, I think the best thing we can do is simply admit our priorities and make us stand by them. It is too important to us to keep the cars moving because we feel that is an economic good to do anything that might increase the number of people who live. We just, we have done a benefit cost analysis and the benefits of trying to keep the cars moving outweigh 42,000 lives a year. Let's just say it. Let's sit with it. Do we like that? If we don't, then we, and it's not just government, it's all the people who show up to public meetings and write nasty grams and all those sorts of things because they cannot believe you're going to add that bike lane or add that crossing and what an unbelievable inconvenience that is. That is a policy decision. And we just need everyone to sit with it and to say, yes. I would rather save 10 seconds in my trip in the morning or have more space so I feel at liberty to go faster than make sure children can bike to school or cross the street safely. This is how I, this is our position and we stand by it. There was a book that came out last year uh, called There Are No Accidents. Uh, and the author, Jesse Singer, was on the podcast, I think maybe about this time last year. Um, would you agree with the idea that an accident yes. is is an unforeseen event and and but we should stop using it in this context because these these deaths that we're talking about are are of course very predictable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's great book, by the way. Um, really makes some excellent points in there about the very attitude we have um, calling these accidents. And pretending like this is happening to us prevents us from, from having any agency in fixing the problem. Um, yeah, the first time something happens as an accident, maybe in the first few times something happens, it, it can be viewed as an accident. But if you refuse to learn from it, whether you are aware of it or not, you are and not not the accident, whether you're aware of your intent or not, at some point you have intent. 
you can't just watch the same thing happen over and over and over and say, you can't figure out the cause. And I see this even in police reports where there is a particular intersection where the same crash is happening repeatedly. And every time it's written off as, as human error. At some point we have to say, why do humans make the same error over and over? Is there something confusing here? We can even see it in AV testing videos. If you are a big nerd like me and you go onto YouTube and watch some of the videos of these vehicles being tested, you'll see that they mess up sometimes in places where humans would absolutely have no problem with it at all, where that, that second of human interaction, eye to eye contact communicates everything you need. But a lot of times, I start to question the design itself. Like when a parking lane kind of looks like it might be a right-hand turn lane, where do you go? Where does the vehicle go to turn right? Sometimes that really confuses the AV. Sometimes these design problems confuse the human too. And if we would take roadway safety as seriously as we take other forms of safety like aviation safety, we would analyze every one of those and say, if people are messing up, we're not giving them the information they need. And we're gonna change that so that the humans have the chance to do, not only do everything right, but doing the right thing is the easy thing. And that is absolutely not what we do because we have a culture of selling out the driver and selling out humans and just writing it off as human error and saying they just need to be educated to not be numbskulls. And that is not the attitude of our counterparts abroad. They fully recognize that humans can be reckless. They, it turns out even non-Americans can be reckless. Maybe teenagers everywhere in the world don't recognize that they are in fact mortal. That could be universal. Uh, it turns out we're not the only country in the world with alcohol. Newsflash, there's some great alcohol in other countries. In Scotland, they have something called uh, scotch. In France and Italy, they have wine. That is quite extraordinary. Um, I apologize to the other nations. I'm forgetting to call out your beautiful wine. You know, there's great beer in, in England and in, in Germany. And all of them don't have the number of drunk driving crashes we have. They don't have the fatalities we have. It turns out we're not the only country with smartphones. They're all over the world. We're not the only country that deals with distraction but all of our counterparts have far fewer fatalities. So if it's not the issues we have in common, we have to start to ask, maybe there's something we don't have in common that shows a blind spot in our own work. And that is where the danger is coming from. And of course that blind spot is the design of our roadways. That's a perfect segue perhaps into uh, discussing an annual report that I think you are a, a co-author on, uh, or I think it's usually an annual report called Dangerous by Design. Uh, what is the premise and um, what is the latest that we know about uh, in terms of where, where design is most problematic and, and who it's most uh, affecting? So Dangerous by Design is supposed to come out every other year. But last year we did one, just one year after the previous report, because we finally had access to the 2020 data. And 2020 was such a formative year, we couldn't just leave that out there. We didn't wanna wait another year to analyze 2021, especially now that for some reason, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has gotten so late in the delivery of their data. Um, it's coming out now in April. So, you know, that's what, 15 months, 14 months after the end of, uh, I guess, 16 months after the end of the year it's reporting on. That's so long. So we went ahead and did a report in 2020 because that was the year that, that seemed to wake people up to the fact that uh, we have a serious problem in this country. When driving goes down, 14% fatalities go up by such an extraordinary level. Um, so this report is looking particularly at pedestrian fatalities. And let me be clear, I use the word pedestrian to include people who are walking 
or rolling. So those in uh, uh, mobility uh, assisted devices are included in uh, the pedestrian numbers. It's just people off of bikes and out of vehicles. And we look at the patterns of who's being affected and where they're being affected. And we find several things. We find if you are in a low income neighborhood, you are far more at risk when you're walking. Um, you are much more likely to be struck and killed. If you're wealthy, you are far less likely. Uh, and in fact, it's almost a perfect association. Uh, if you are uh, black, you are twice as likely as a white person to be struck and killed while walking. If you're a Native American, it's three times more likely. Um, there are uh, dangers, particularly for older Americans. Uh, you become more frail as you age. We see the fatalities as a pedestrian increase, particularly for people over 70. And uh, we are now seeing it's one of the highest causes of uh, fatalities amongst minors. So the, our most vulnerable people are the ones most impacted by this danger. And it's not just the safety danger, it's the very understanding of the safety danger that cuts off their access to services because some people just opt out of movement as a result. And that is uh, tragic in its own way. Uh, I'll finish by saying there's also a problem uh, that we find particularly on what are known as arterial roadways. So these are those big, wide, uh, major streets uh, in urban, uh, suburban, exurban, or rural villages that uh, uh, serve a lot of traffic, uh, but it's not including those limited access highways. Um, that's where 60% of the fatalities are occurring. And uh, that is those places that those are the roadways designed for through traffic, but it's abutting all kinds of development and driveways and parking lots and, and conflict that is at the heart of that, that danger. So infrastructure does not change on a dime beyond thinking like, oh, in 30 years when they you know, rebuild this neighborhood, um, that's when we can address some of these conflict zones that you've laid out. Are there, beyond waving a magic wand and getting everyone to slow down tomorrow, um, are there other short-term fixes that can, can make a positive impact before the next time the infrastructure is redesigned? Yeah, and, and there's a lot that we can do to redesign things without redoing the whole corridor. Uh, we actually work with uh, cities and states on temporary interventions um, to pilot something different. There's so many good reasons to do that, um, that uh, I, I think it's actually better for everyone if we would try things out before we make major investments. So um, what we do in transportation now is we talk about stuff for years. There's years of these theoretical conversations, which nobody understands. If you show an engineer an engineering sketch, they can't tell you what it's going to feel like. That's not, that is, an engineering sketch is to help you figure out what design needs to happen and how to instruct your construction crews. It is not about giving people access to virtual reality. Um, so rather than talking about something for three years and then spending millions of dollars to redesign a corridor, we could go in and do things for tens of thousands of dollars with paint, with uh, planters, with uh, delineators, with very temporary, very low cost interventions and change the design for a few blocks and then bring the community in and say, what do you think? What do you hate? What do you love? What do you think could be good if we did it a little bit differently? And then do your design with the public as a part of the design. So that they can, instead of saying, boy, I'm afraid that that's going to feel really bad to me, they can actually drive it and say, oh, I was right. That felt really bad to me. Or, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Because it's very human to 
to react poorly to change. It's very hard to understand what that's going to mean in the built environment. Um, so we're working with a whole bunch of places on doing just that. We've worked with a bunch of folks. You can find it on our website, smartgrowthamerica.org. Uh, but we worked with Lexington, Kentucky, uh, South Bend, Indiana, Orlando, Florida, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and a couple other places. And I apologize, those cities I'm forgetting, where they did just that. And these very temporary interventions absolutely slowed down traffic. In fact, in South Bend, they used it as a way to educate people on what they were trying to do. They created a temporary traffic circle. And then they had signs up that said, this is a traffic circle. This is why we built it. This is what it's about. Give us your feedback. And learned a lot from the public. We're now working with four state DOTs to do this work on those very state-owned arterials to make temporary changes and hopefully learn what works and involve the public in that change. Did you find, we were talking about the pandemic period earlier. Uh, I'm curious, did you find uh, an increase in the willingness of yeah. towns and cities to do those sort of experiments during COVID? Because all of a sudden there's outdoor dining, you don't need yes. as many parking spaces. So COVID is a big uh, catalyst here in some way. Emergencies bring out experimentation and innovation. And uh, everyone was willing to try out some new and interesting things during COVID. The problem is when, when the emergency passes, so does that experimentation. So literally last week, you could tolerate a different design and now we're back to normal and now it can't be, it can't possibly be there anymore. Um, it's why when those things happen, you can't take this on a project by project basis. You have to make actual policy change. And this has been the problem with our approach to transportation from the beginning. We keep saying, here's a new little tiny pot of funding for you to try some new things. And instead of saying, let's learn and incorporate that into all of our work, we say, no, 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 no. You keep your cute little bike ped stuff over here in this little pot and stay out of the real money. And then, and let me just say, it works brilliantly. All the bike ped advocates stay in their little bitty pot of funding and fight over it and seek to perfect it while the big money is undermining all of that work with, uh, with, with huge pots of cash that overwhelm it. You feel like you're doing something because there are a bunch of projects out there that are really cool but it doesn't matter because it's one one thousandth of the work being done. And this is the problem with COVID. We did a whole bunch of cool things, but we didn't change our overall approach. So now we are just doing some cool things over here and not really anything interesting over there. Well, this is interesting because I feel like we hear often when, when somebody's trying to do something new, be it build a bike lane or or something as big as, let's say, high-speed rail, like, like, oh, these things are so expensive, we couldn't possibly do them. But to your point, the uh, the those buckets are are significantly smaller than the money that we're spending on the status quo. Well, and expensive is an interesting problem. Expensive, when it comes to bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure, tends to come up because we are building bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure on the side of the highway. If we actually redesigned the roadway and took some space from the cars, instead of having to buy out businesses to make space for uh, you know, a cycle track and some nice wide sidewalks on the side of the highway, we wouldn't need to spend more money. We'd just be rearranging the space. It's only expensive because it's not thought about at the beginning and it's not a reallocation of space. It's knocking down development to make space for bike ped. That's backwards. We have, uh, it, vehicles can operate with just 10 feet. They don't need 12, 13, 14 feet like we're putting on interstates. Not that we often put 14 feet, but often you will see the right or left lane being super wide, like 14 feet wide. They don't need that much space, especially if they're supposed to go 25 miles per hour. They can get by a nine and a half feet, maybe even nine. Um, so, if we took that approach, it wouldn't be expensive. It would be cheaper because we'd have less pavement. But that's not the approach we take. The other thing is it's expensive to do things we have no experience doing. 
And so long as we keep these as unusual projects, as pilots, as something we try every 10 years, so it's a whole new crop of folks learning every time you do it, which is often the case with transit, certainly the case with high-speed rail, it's hard to make it something that is a, a, a matter of course and therefore bring down the price. And we understand that in almost every area of, of production in the economy, except for transportation. Beth, I'm curious, uh, how did you get involved in this particular um, design realm, concern about traffic fatalities, and, and you know, what was your entry point into to this particular career path? It's a good question, and I, I fear that I, uh, I re-engineer my own history when I look back sometimes, uh, because I didn't start out working in transportation. Um, I, I, I went to law school. Uh, if you have any loved ones thinking about it, send them to me. I, I'm very good at talking people out of it. Um, I uh, then came to D.C. and I worked on Capitol Hill, mostly in environment and natural resource issues. And uh, transportation just kept coming up as the problem. It was the problem with stormwater runoff. It was the problem with taking up green space. It was the problem with, you know, uh, all kinds of public health issues with air quality. Um, and that kept drawing me in. Um, and then I worked at the Southern Governors Association. And while I was there, I got to work with the governor of Maryland uh, at the time, Paris Glendening, who is Mr. Smart Growth. And then I later shared uh, the office I'm sitting in now talking to you. I shared with him. Years later, we both ended up here at Smart Growth America. And I worked with then governor of Arkansas, Mike Huckabee, who were both really interested in, in designing our communities to be wonderful places to spend time in and walk around. Uh, governor Huckabee had spent a lot of time in redesigning downtown Little Rock. And that got me into it. And I really, it really resonated with me because when I was in school uh, in Baton Rouge, I didn't have enough money to pay my bills and needed to find a job, but I couldn't find a job that I could reach outside of a car, but I couldn't afford a car because I already couldn't pay my bills. So I couldn't get a job without a car, but couldn't afford a car without a job. And I grew up solidly middle-class. So if that's something I was facing, there must be tens of millions of people at least facing that issue. And I bought my way out of it because my parents could do that for me. And that just seemed like the most un-American thing ever. The idea that we literally don't want your labor and productivity if you can't pay a cover charge to enter the economy. Just doesn't make any sense at all. And, uh, and when I moved to Washington, D.C., I got rid of that car that my parents had bought me and I lived off of the proceeds while I started, while I looked for a job and then didn't need to have a car for 11 years. That money allowed me to save and to travel, which was lovely, um, and to buy into what became a very heated housing market before it totally got away from us. Um, and it wasn't until the FBI, in its brilliance, moved uh, a lot of their facilities out uh, into the exurbs of Washington, D.C., that we had to, my husband and I had to buy a car again, um, which I viewed as an $8,000 a year pay cut because that is exactly what it was. So I, I just, these things have always resonated with me because I've experienced it so directly. Beth, we've talked about the role of, of human drivers. We've talked about the role of, of city designers or traffic engineers. What about the role of the, the auto industry and the, and the vehicles themselves? Yeah, we have seen uh, a major increase in the size and uh, weight of vehicles. Uh, in fact, if you look at Dangerous by Design and a lot of other safety reports, it shows the uh, different level of danger, particularly to a pedestrian, uh, being struck by a vehicle at different speeds, where one in 10 will survive being hit, 
at 20 miles per hour. Uh, it goes closer to 50-50 at 30, and it becomes 9 and 10 around 40. That's based on a vehicle fleet that existed in the 80s. Uh, we have very different vehicle fleet now, which might mean those numbers are uh, way too safe. And uh, fundamentally, we have a really interesting problem in the United States of America where we are building our, particularly SUVs and trucks, with a front blind spot. And we are now calling crashes where we run into people with the front of our vehicles as a, quote, front over. Again, this kind of, oh, it's an accident. It's something that happens to us. When we talk about helping to deal with the blind spot in the front of a vehicle, we're talking about putting screens on the inside of the car to look at a camera on the front that plays to the, a screen on the inside of a car, telling people, take your eyes off the road to see what's on the road. The fact of the matter is, at this point, when I walk around, I am five foot two. There are an unbelievable number of trucks that come up to my eye level. Even at an extraordinarily slow pace, that vehicle is going to hit me in the head and chest. That's, that's something built to kill. And we'd hear a lot of the auto manufacturers talk about wanting their cars to look intimidating. Well, I wanna let them know you've been successful. It is absolutely terrifying for the front of a vehicle to be coming at my face and know that the driver has been blinded to my presence. I can't believe anybody in the auto manufacturing world can sleep at night knowing they have done that. And I hope to see NHTSA regulate for front vision. If not, we might as well just blind our drivers and let them drive around. That is, we are really close to approaching that sort of world. And I, 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 I hope to see the auto manufacturers take this seriously themselves and not have to be regulated into allowing the driver to see what's in front of their vehicle. But if not, I hope we regulate the hell out of them. Last question for you here. Uh, we've talked a lot about the problems caused by automobiles. Uh, and or those who drive them and design that's centered around them. Uh, so from your vantage point, what, if any, should be the role of cars in moving people around? It's a great question. And one thing I want to point out is auto-centric design is utterly anti-driver. The way we've approached giving infinite space to car travel has so extended our travel. We have to travel an average of five miles more per day per person from the, the mid nineties as a result of auto-centric design. So all of our trips have gotten longer and we have to spend ever more time in the car in the name of the convenience of driving. I don't think we've quite figured this out. It's really turned out poorly for everybody. Um, you know, right now, uh, if you live a few blocks away from a grocery store, it's likely too dangerous for you to walk there, which means we have a bunch of people traveling a few blocks in a car to a grocery store, which then needs a ton of space for parking, which means tons of land that is going on to either create to create uh, tons of runoff or onto private developers uh, cost, which makes them develop less or onto the tax rolls to maintain costing the taxpayer. What it's not doing is creating jobs, creating homes and raising money. There's it, it's it's bad for everybody and the drivers most of all. And again, it's created a system where if you follow the design and behave in a way that makes sense, when you make a mistake that is inevitable and repetitious, you will be blamed for it. You will be sold out because a bunch of engineers and designers don't want to do anything any differently or because they've convinced you that a system that sells you out is good for you. It's a, it's a top to bottom disaster. And it's why we sit in traffic all the time. We could not have done better if we'd taken the world's 
smartest engineers and said, can you figure out a way to manufacture a high cost, inefficient system with maximum congestion for the fewest number of people? We couldn't have done better than the system we have today. So I think the biggest thing we need to do is start to measure what we really care about. Let's start to measure trips. Let's start to figure out how many jobs, how many necessities from grocery stores to banks, to schools, to uh, uh, parks and things like that, can you access from your neighborhood by all modes of travel? And then when we look at these projects, let's see if they make any difference to that. They can make cars move faster and not add to your destinations in any way, shape or form. In fact, sometimes we make cars move faster and take away access. So we might be make, letting cars go through your neighborhood faster by making it impossible for you to cross the street. We should be looking at that and determining whether or not we are creating an, an environment where you can reach the things you need. And not just you, but maybe, maybe you can reach the hospital just fine, but maybe the lab tech that you need to be there to take your blood can't. And we need to make a system that it works for you, which means all the people you need will be in the place you need them to be. And that is totally available to us. And I think if we start doing it, we'll get, we'll push towards very different, very positive results. We will not be spending the same amount of money on total boondoggles that do not impact that uh, outcome. And we'll find a lot of lower cost interventions that improve that access. And even better, we'll be able to look at all modes of travel and land use on the same playing field and determine which kind of investment makes the most sense. Does it make sense to expand this roadway to help people get to the grocery? Or does it make sense to get a grocery in your neighborhood? And generally that development is the smarter move, not that long-term uh, uh, investment in a wider road. Well, Beth, it's been great having you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for making the time. And uh, I hope we can do this again somewhere down the road. Well, thanks so much for inviting me and, and setting me off on my soapbox. It's kind of easy to do, but it's always fun. All right. That is a wrap for this week. Thank you to Beth. In thinking about the role of human error and what we perceive as human error, one thing I've thought about is how there's been a parallel in aviation over the years where the first instinct traditionally was to attribute crashes to pilot error. Certainly that is the case in some portion of crashes, but there's been an evolution in the thinking about that. Now considering the role of automation in the cockpit, the design of systems, and I bet there's some lessons learned that could be applicable to driving today. Uh, that is it for this week. We'll have to save that topic for next time. Uh, if you enjoyed my conversation with Beth, please consider leaving us a review or subscribing to Shift at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to Beth. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. 